Our scripture text this evening is 2 Thessalonians. We come to our the end of our series this evening in 2 Thessalonians. Our text is chapter 3, verses 16 through 18. God's word. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. This evening we come to the end of our series on the letters to the Thessalonians and the theme of these closing verses is the Thessalonians' need for peace. We're talking about spiritual peace, the peace that only Christ can give. We're talking about peace of the heart, peace toward the brethren, peace in the life of the church. Only Christ through his spirit can give his church and his people such peace. And these closing words are very appropriate to the particular needs of the Thessalonians. Um, this is the way I, in which I wish, wish to deal with these verses this evening. Rather than speak in general terms about how we need God's peace and his grace, I would direct you to the context in which Paul spoke these words. So our question this evening is, what in the Thessalonian church was disturbing the peace? What was going on in the lives of these believers that prompted Paul to ask that the Lord would give them peace? What were their spiritual needs that in a related way required God's grace? And as we attempt to answer these questions, we will naturally find ourselves summarizing the problems that the Thessalonian church faced. And you and I as members of Providence Presbyterian Church need to recognize that the issues that had the potential to disturb the peace of the Thessalonian body of Christ have the potential to do the same with us today. We need to recognize these same potential problems in our lives and church, and then with reliance of world peace. Um, of course, there's also the reality that conflicts between nations begin with conflicts between people. There is a universal longing for the peace of people getting along with one another. Well, is that what is meant in Scripture by peace? Well, this word that is translated here as peace can refer to the absence of war. It certainly includes the idea of harmony between individuals. It shouldn't surprise us that most of the time in Scripture, this peace among people, though, is talked about in the context of the church. Uh, so that we are told, for instance, in Ephesians 4, verse 3, to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The absence of war and harmony among people certainly is included in the biblical definition of peace, but there is so much more as we consider this peace from a spiritual point of view and in the context of the church. The biblical concept of peace is actually very rich. It's, it's multifaceted. The biblical definition of spiritual peace, I mean, it could almost be defined as spiritual prosperity. Uh, it includes the ideas of security, of safety, of happiness, and even prosperity. And the spiritual peace and true pros prosperity go together. So how does one get this peace? Well, spiritual peace is really 
peace with God that he alone can give us through his son. Many people in this world don't know there is even a need for such peace because they have no knowledge of their sin. They have no concept of the idea of sin separating them from God and making them worthy of God's wrath. And the need to have peace implies that God and man are enemies. People don't understand that. Um, The source of this enmity is our sin. It's our rebellion. Uh, Because of our sin, we are enemies of God. I'm talking about by nature who deserved to die eternally in hell. But what did God do in his grace? He sent Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, to die on the cross in order to appease God's wrath against our sin. And God teaches us in his word that Jesus atoned for our sin by his death on the cross. And when we put our trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, his atoning blood covers our sins. And the result of this covering is that our sins are forgiven and we are reconciled to God. And our relationship with God that had been broken by sin is restored. As believers in Jesus Christ, we have fellowship with God exactly as we were created to enjoy. The terms justification, salvation, fellowship, reconciliation are just a few of the words that we find in Scripture describing what Christ has earned for us as his redeemed people. These words describe how we are as saved sinners at peace with God. We were once alienated from God, far from God, haters of God. And from God's perspective, we were his enemies. But now God, by grace through faith, has brought us near. So that we love him even as he first loved us. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so when the Bible speaks of peace, it's often referring to the peace of justification, the peace of being right with God. And at the same time, this peace is not just simply about the fact that we are at peace with God, but this peace is something that we experience inside of our hearts. It is a peace that affects our emotions, our heart, our spirit. God's peace has a calming, comforting effect on the hearts of those to whom God gives it. For example, biblical peace is, includes that biblical peace of the heart that God gives his children where your heart is no longer filled with fear or guilt over sin because you know you are forgiven through Christ. Because of the knowledge that Christ has died for your sins, your fear of God's judgment is gone. Without God's peace, your heart would be in turmoil because of these feelings of guilt over sin. Without peace, you feel dirty, you feel distressed, you know you deserve judgment. To be in a state of guilt over sin really is to be in a state of torment. But when the Holy Spirit impresses upon you the gospel of Jesus Christ, the reality of what Christ has done to forgive your sins, and this load is lifted from your heart, and happiness fills your heart because you know that you will never be condemned by God. And this peace is yours when you know that Christ has so thoroughly taken away the guilt of your sin that you know your future is entirely one of hope and glory. At peace with God, you know that God loves you. You know that he will do everything that is best for you. And so with this peace, you can face any and all circumstances. The peace that Christ gives us is a peace of heart where you are content in him. With Christ's peace, your heart is no longer filled with the world's greed, the the world's covetousness, this desire to be rich. You are not restless 
because you have those things that make life truly meaningful. And so it's really the Christian who is at peace with God, who is prosperous in in the right sense of that word. For when Christ is your Lord and Savior, you are content. Uh, Content with him, with knowing him. You're content because of the great spiritual blessings that, that are yours through Christ. In Christ you are rich. In Christ you are satisfied. For you have everything that you need and that you want. And flowing then out of this peace with God is the peace that the Holy Spirit gives us in the church, where as a body together, as a unified body, we encourage one another in our common faith and work together to serve Christ and build his kingdom. So what was it about the church of Thessalonica that prompted Paul to ask that the Lord would give them peace? One of the things that has been said several times during this series is that the church of Thessalonica did not really have glaring problems. There weren't problems that demanded emergency measures. Overall, the church was a healthy, God-glorifying body, and Paul praises them for their faith and their love and their patient enduring of persecution and afflictions. And yet, as with all churches, there are weaknesses and there are circumstances and, and that, that are creating challenges for the people in this church and things that are, that are challenging the peace of the church, the peace of the church as a body and the peace of people's hearts. So let's consider some of the things going on that were disturbing the peace. One of the problems was slanderers who were trying to discredit the ministries of Paul and his companions. We're told about this indirectly in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Um, The first half of that chapter is devoted to Paul defending his work and his motives among the Thessalonians. So if you want to join with me, look back to um, chapter 2. This is in 1 Thessalonians I'll read verses 1 through 6. It says, For you yourselves know, brothers, that are coming to you is not in vain, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. And Paul goes on to tell them that the method and motivation in his ministry was love. It was all about love. To summarize Paul's defense, he was saying to the church, Brothers, we came to you in order to give, not to take. We came as servants of God devoted to bringing you the truth of God's word. We did not have ulterior motives. Our ministry was not about flattery. It was not about deception in order to get something from you or to use you in some way. To the contrary, he explains, our ministry involved much self-sacrifice. We came to you and we taught you because we loved you. We wanted what was best for you. And for Paul, think of it, to feel the need to make such a defense tells us that there was some voice in the church that was saying the opposite. There was a person or perhaps a group within the church, people who were saying something like Paul and his companions are using you. They are con artists who are manipulating you with their words because they are selfish and they are greedy. They want prestige, they want money, they want power, etc., You can imagine how if such slander took root in the hearts of even a few people in the church, this would create disunity. If members listened to such slander, the peace of the church would be disrupted. You can't have peace and unity in the church if members are not in agreement on the truth and who is a false teacher and who is not. It's a fact that if you don't have a proper understanding of God's word, it's going to affect your own peace of heart. It's evident from both of the letters to the Thessalonian church that a misunderstanding of truth 
uh, in particular about the Lord's second coming was disturbing the peace of these believers as individuals. It's also, it was also affecting the peace of the church as a body. And the misunderstanding had to do with what would happen to believers who had already died. This was back in 1 Thessalonians. It was thought by some that their loved ones who had died before Christ returned were going to miss out to some degree on the glories of Christ's return. Because some of the believers were ignorant of the truth about God's plan for the future, the potential was there for them to fall into a state of sorrow like an unbeliever who has no hope. A heart filled with such sorrow, of course, is not in a state of peace. And so Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 through 14, For we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. And so Paul corrects their misunderstanding. He assures them that with the Lord there is no partiality, that those who are alive at the Lord's coming will have no advantage over those who have fallen asleep. It's the truth that he proclaims that restores peace, restores calm to these people who are disturbed by these false ideas. And then in the second letter to the Thessalonians, Paul deals with yet another misunderstanding over the Lord's second coming. He tells them in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 and following, he says, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind, mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter, seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of Christ has come. Think about it. If you're shaken in mind, if you are alarmed or troubled, depending on your translation there, but if you're shaken in mind and alarmed, you're not in a state of peace. And what was creating this chaos in their hearts was false teaching. Um, apparently some were claiming, or Paul thought perhaps some were claiming to have received a revelation from the Spirit. Perhaps there was a person who was just plain teaching false doctrine, or letters were coming to the Thessalonians from false teachers claiming to be um, from the, the apostles. But whatever the source, believers were being told false doctrine. They were being told that the day of Christ had come. Some may have taken this to mean that Christ had come secretly and had left them behind, which would be certainly very troubling. But that the day of Christ has come is usually explained as meaning that Christ is going to appear at any moment. It, it, it uh, was apparently thought by some that history was down now to the very last minutes, and this belief was disturbing the peace of their lives. It was disturbing the peace of the church. And it's not hard to imagine why such a belief would lead to an unbalanced life. It seems only logical that it was this belief that explains why many of the believers in Thessalonica were not working. They had probably quit their jobs in anticipation of seeing Christ at any moment. And because they were not working, they had extra time on their hands to involve themselves in annoying activities that also disturbed the peace of the church. And so 1 Thessalonians 4 Verse 11 records Paul saying to these people who are not working, mind your own affairs. And uh, when I preached on that verse, I pointed out that a study of the Greek gives us a clue as to what was happening. This expression, mind your own affairs, indicates that some were interfering with the leaders of the church and how to run the church. 
And this can happen when people have their own agenda of what they want to see happen in the church. And I can imagine how people who are all stirred up about the Lord's immediate coming might create such a ruckus in the church. They probably wanted the leaders to join with them in their radicalism. But I can also picture the leaders not going along with it. And so not giving up these busybodies, they start talking to other members and they stir them up and disturb their peace. And then they bring up the subject of the, of the Lord's immediate return at every opportunity that arises and constantly keep pushing this upon the church. And actually these non-workers were creating no end of problems. Case in point, those members of the church who were not working were expecting to be financially supported by the other members. The church leaders were probably telling the loafers, get to work. But the loafers did not like that instruction. And then there's the resentment that likely is arising from the victims of these leeches. And there is the fact that those who are not working have time on their hands, not only to interfere with the leaders of the church, but also with the lives of the members in general. They are busybodies, we are told which often associated with such is gossip. Um, The Greek word literally refers to being unruly. These people were troublemakers. And what was going on, and it's easy to imagine, um, with all of that going on, it's easy to imagine conflict or at least a lot of underlying tension building in the church. Its peace is being threatened. And in in response, Paul tells the loafers in 1 Thessalonians 4.11 to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, to work with your own hands as we instructed you. He repeats much of the same instruction in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, 11, and 12, where we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. A quiet life is a peaceful life. Threats to peace do not arise only from within the church. There's also the threat to the the peace of the believers in the church that comes from persecution, which is also part of what the Thessalonian Christians were experiencing. Remember the words of 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 14 through 16. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins. And we have 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 1 and following. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, We were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Jesus Christ to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. In 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 4, Therefore we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. And so the Thessalonian church was a persecuted church. And persecution always has the potential to disturb the peace of a believer's heart. You can become discouraged and begin to question God's ways. Uh, You may be tempted to complain and murmur against God. There's the potential for hearts to be filled with worry. 
There's also the chaos that persecution can create, not only in our hearts, but in our everyday lives. As a result of persecution, Christians can lose jobs, they can lose family connections, they can lose reputations, they can lose their homes, they can lose their lives. Churches can't meet where and when they would like. Persecution is always a challenge to peace. And for these and other reasons, there were those in Thessalonica who were not characterized by God's peace. And so Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.14, And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, that is, those who are not working and who are creating a ruckus in the church. And he says, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. So who are these faint-hearted? Well, the faint-hearted are those who are discouraged because of difficult life circumstances. And they've lost heart, and they're probably concerned, in some cases at least, over lost loved ones as a result of the persecution. And they need God's comfort in order to be at peace. The weak are those who are weak in the faith because they are weak in the scriptures. They are prone to false doctrine. They're not strong against sin. Their weak spiritual state means they are those who easily become the faint-hearted. They also need peace restored to their hearts and lives. So if we step back and evaluate the Thessalonian church as a whole, what is the main threat to its peace? I believe that the central problem in this church is their need to grow in their knowledge of God's word. The solution to their problems really is doctrine. For instance, many of their problems are due to the fact that they have a misunderstanding about the Lord's return. But knowing the truth that Christ is going to return and, and bless all of his people, that's the key to the comfort of those who have lost loved ones. Knowing the, the truth that Christ will return only after certain precursory signs are fulfilled, such as the coming of the Antichrist, that should lead those who are living, living these idle lives to start working again. It's the word of God that gives us peace in the midst of persecution. We're given doctrine in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, which enables us to stand like a solid rock against the storm of persecution. Where it says, therefore we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. So your persecutions, afflictions, tribulations that you experience are not a sign of God's disfavor. Just the opposite is true. Persecutions and afflictions are the occasion for God to show you as his people that he loves you and to show you and to prove to you that your sins are forgiven in Jesus Christ because God in love and in grace gives you his people strength to persevere through trials. He uses trials to bless you spiritually, to strengthen your faith, to increase your love. And so these blessings prove that trials are not about experiencing God's wrath against sin, but having Christ is your Savior who has suffered all of the punishment of your sin. All of life's circumstances are sent in love. And so it's the cross of Jesus Christ. It's, it's the gospel. It's the, the, the knowledge of being right with God through Christ. That gives peace to our hearts in the midst of persecution. For we know that we are not possibly experiencing the wrath of God that Christ himself took upon himself. The church in Thessalonica needed the word of God. And yet we also understand that there were things in, in this church hindering the ministry of the word. 
I'd remind you of those slanderers who sought to undermine Paul's teaching authority. Then there were those who were spreading false ideas about Christ's return. So no wonder Paul felt the need to write here at the end of 2 Thessalonians, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. So Paul is giving authentication to his letter so that the church will know that this letter comes from Christ's apostle, that this is the true word of God. This is important in the midst of so many false teachers who are, who are trying to get out their message. It's important that you believe what God says in his word alone. We must all believe the word of God. We must all live by it. This is vital to the peace and unity of the church. So there were these slanderers that Paul felt he had to make sure that, that uh, his word to the people was authenticated by uh, his signature, by the way he wrote. <clears throat> Another thing that hindered the work of the Lord in the Thessalonian church was their lack of submission toward the word. This is reflected in their tendency not to respect the local leaders of the church who brought them the word of God. I have uh, already reminded you of Paul's command that they mind their own affairs, that they not interfere with their leaders. But there's also the admonition of 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 12 and 13. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. Some were not esteeming those who were bringing the word to them in the Lord's name. As a result, people were not getting along. Paul has to say, be at peace among yourselves. And then there is the additional evidence of a resistance to God's word and work in the admonition of 1 Thessalonians 5, 19 and 20, where the apostle says, do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies. There's the fact that Paul has to again and again, exhort certain members to get to work. Remember how he did it? He says, when he was with them, he, he instructed them again in his first letter to the Thessalonians. He did it again in his second letter to the Thessalonians. There's this resistance to listen and to submit to this instruction. And then after giving instruction against sexual immorality, what he says in 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 8 shows that he anticipates also with that, some resistance. He says, therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. In 2 Thessalonians 2.15, he says, so then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. And so if we put everything together, this church had members who did not like to be told what to do. They, they didn't always respect authority. They were not submissive to God's word as they should have been and to those that God had appointed to bring that word to them. This was disturbing the peace of their own hearts. It was disturbing the peace of the church. And so people of God, if there is a message that comes from these, these two letters to the Thessalonians, it is that even when things are going relatively well in the church, there's always a, greater, a need for greater peace in our hearts, and in the life of the church. We need to be, uh, we need to have the Lord with us. We need to have the Lord sanctifying us, drawing him ever, us, us ever closer to him in an increasing way every day. Well, how does this happen? 
How is it that we grow closer to the Lord? How do we grow in this peace? Well, through his word becoming more and more a part of our lives. Peace comes as the Holy Spirit implants God's word in your heart. And so be a student of the word. Listen to the word of God. Submit to the word of God. Be submissive to those appointed over you to bring that word. And when that word confronts sin in your heart and life, don't resist the work of the Spirit. Desire the peace that only the word and Spirit can give. The problem is that we don't by nature want to submit to the Lord of peace. And ultimately, it is only by God's grace changing our hearts that we ever submit to God's word and benefit from it. And so it's appropriate that the epistle end on a note of really dependence upon God when he says there in verse 18, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. We need the grace. We need the gift of God's Spirit working in our hearts, giving us peace. May God be gracious to us. May that be our prayer. May the Lord of peace give us what we cannot get on our own. Grace is the gift of God giving us spiritual gifts that we can never earn. that can only be ours through the Lord Jesus Christ. And the peace that Christ has earned through his death upon the cross is a peace that the world does not, does not know, it does not have. Christ alone can give us the peace that we need. And this is the peace that God in his grace will willingly give if you will but seek it from him. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that there is peace through the Lord Jesus Christ, that there is a way for us to be reconciled with you, a way to be set free from the guilt of sin, that we might have peace in our hearts, contentment and rest in our hearts. And we thank you as well for the work of the Spirit, enabling us to have peace in the church and our relationships with one another. Father, we thank you for your word in which we have that doctrine, that, that truth that enables us to experience this peace. So, Father, may we grow in our understanding of your word. May we grow in our submission to your word. And as it comes to us through the people that you have placed in authority over us, we pray that we would be submissive to them, willing to listen. And, Father, we pray that you would be gracious to us. We pray that you would enable us more and more to recognize the sin in our lives and to turn from it, that we would recognize more and more what Christ has done for us, how he has suffered all that our sins deserve. Lord, we pray for peace even in the midst of persecution. And we thank you that in Christ we can experience that. So, Father, we pray that you as the Lord of peace would give us peace at all times in every way, that you would be with us in the person of your Holy Spirit, that you would be with us through your word, We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.